You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 16th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Alliance Partners. Hello and a very warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in the next 30 minutes, the bombardment of Ukraine intensifies. Intelligence reports of a rise in the number of air attacks by Russia. We'll have the latest. Also ahead. There were questions as soon as his name was announced as to what credibility he was bringing into this job and especially his position on climate change. The president of the World Bank, David Malpass, resigns overnight. We'll cross over to Washington, D.C. to find out why. We'll flick through the day's newspapers and it's Thursday, which means Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here with his weekly global countdown. What do you have for us today, Faye? Something special? Very special, Emma. Are you ready to dance, by the way? I'll guide you through the carnival hits of 2023. I'll get limbering up. More from Fernando a little later. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The number of Russian air attacks carried out against Ukraine has risen in the last week. British military intelligence reported the rise with the number of strikes now comparable to summer last year. The latest Russian strikes hit infrastructure around the west of Ukraine's region as heavy fighting continues in the east. Well, for an update, I'm delighted to say the journalist Natalia Gumyanyuk joins me on the line from Ukraine. Good afternoon to you, Natalia. Good afternoon from Kiev. So just tell us what's the latest. Um, so indeed, people are, are anticipating, you know, something because there are serious report on the possible larger offense as Russia is mobilizing uh, its troops uh, closer to the anniversary of the invasion. And yes, you mentioned there are many attacks, but um, what to explain that, um, you, you know, they are now targeted not just to the capital, because usually you know, they are in the news when the capital is targeted or any major town. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of smaller towns around the country near the Russian border, near the line of the, you know, separation like her, like Kherson, where you regularly hear yesterday, today, a lady of 79 years old died in Pavlograd in the Dnipro region. An elderly lady has been shot by the shrapnel in Kherson today. Another, you know, six people uh, had been wounded in a small town in Kharkiv region. So it's happening, uh, you know, unfortunately, when it's not a major attack on one house in a bigger town, it has lesser attention. So it's still devastating because uh, you understand that the air defense in the bigger towns like Odessa or Kiev or the capital, it's better. Uh, you know, so if, even if there are regular today attacks by the Iranian drones or by the Russians, uh, the Ukrainian air defense is ready to defend some of the major, you know, places or the capital. Uh, but it's more unfortunate for the uh, for the smaller towns, especially those which are closer to the front line. Do we know what Russia is trying to achieve here? Because we've seen in the past when there have been deliberate targeting of infrastructure, such as power plants, water supplies. When you strike big cities, it's to unsettle and undermine seats of power and influence. But if you start to target smaller towns, what, what, does, what effect does that have on you in Ukraine? So, first of all, the attacks on the infrastructure is still going on, but there is something which has happened. First, the major power plants were for 
for the all this period were attacked in big towns and they are big it's easy to target them <laughs> and things in then ukraine managed to you know diversify the energy supply so for instance for the first time for the three days in kiev i constantly hear that there is no power cuts ukraine has enough energy some of the things were fixed some are hidden so it's going on but it's not that successful if you speak about the other towns i think there is no surprise that the tactics is about terrorizing ukraine so for instance what is a painful thing for me is the town of Kherson, which is liberated so setting the uh, the rockets back can't be perceived anything but revenge just you know to make life of the people unbearable with the uh, less expensive ammunition which uh, russian ammunition i mean uh, i'm speaking about the russians who you know they have lesser um, missiles which can be which are very sophisticated and could be very precise to target the capital but they have a lot on the border when they can just shell and shell and shell in order to you know spoils people life it's has nothing uh, it's it's not very smart from the military strategy but it's still tragic for the people is there a sense at least there is from the outside that there is a build up being uh, made by russia ahead of next week's anniversary of its invasion of ukraine do you get that uh, so sense where you are uh, so I'm in Kiev. Uh, the discussion about that are there for the last months. The government is pretty serious about that. It's believed that still the build-up would be in the Donbas um, and closer to the Russian border in Kharkiv region. As uh, you know, there are less today uh, beliefs that that could be attacked from the uh, Belarus uh, from the north on Kiev, like like it was year before. Also, because Ukraine is, but it also stretches the Ukrainian resources. So of course, it's more fortified. There are, you know, Ukrainian troops on the northern border as well. Um, they believe that it's made mainly the destruction that they cannot kind of have all the people uh, closer to the uh, you know front line. Or and also, Ukraine is also considering a counteroffense because. Uh, that's also the only way, the further Ukrainian troops are pushing the Russians, the lesser they attack the Ukrainian towns, the less damage they create for the population. There are reports that um, there's frustration being uh, expressed by the international community, in, in Germany in particular, saying that the, lot, the, the promises that Ukraine would receive Leopard 2 tanks in order for it to defend itself from any fresh onslaught by Russia... Um, is not happening as quickly as it should do. He's been singling out several countries for not sending the tanks when they say that they would. How does that make you feel in Ukraine when you know that the rest of the world is still deciding and trying to sort itself out in order to help you? I think Ukrainians cannot afford to be frustrated. <laughs> you know, it might be disappointed, uh, in particular because there is a clear, clear understanding you know, I'm a journalist, uh, I am I live in Kiev, but I'm a Ukrainian citizen and I'm well informed. And on a daily basis, I read the news about that person died, that soldier, you know, uh, or, or the colleague, relative or somebody uh, on, in the front line. I'm, I'm meaning like the people who are, who are fighting. So it's very clear. And I heard these uh, talks from, you know, a veteran whom I knew who said like, oh, my platoon has lost today eight people because we didn't have, you know, a proper uh, military vehicle. If they had something else, they might have survived. So it's, it's very, it's, it's very clear. But I, I think that it 
quite a lot has been done. Uh, the Ukrainians are quite confident that, you know, the most important is to start. The fact that the leopard as are given, it means the more would follow. It's very important to break this ice, you know, and that if, if already this ammunition is supplied, most probably we wish it would be faster. Ukraine needs it to be faster. Uh, it's still the West kind of lagging behind. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate uh, because it's less efficient. It's in the end cost more in the end. Uh, but uh, what to do? You know, the, 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 the result on the ground is what we have at this moment. Natalia Gumnyanyuk on the phone, on the line, I should say, from Kiev. Many thanks. We're very grateful for your time. The time here in London is 12.08. A quick summary now from Carlotta Rebello of the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Emma. The suspected Chinese spy balloon that was shot down while crossing the United States was originally set to head over Guam and Hawaii before being blown off course by winds. The device drifted across Alaska, Canada and central U.S. before being shot down by the U.S. military last week. A government commission in Russia has approved the sale of the factories of IKEA, the Swedish furniture maker, to two local buyers. It follows a decision by several Western companies to leave Russia after it launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. IKEA hopes to finalize the terms early this year. And the websites of at least three German airports are disrupted today. It comes a day after a major IT failure at Lufthansa, which left thousands of passengers stranded at Frankfurt Airport. German ground crew is also due to strike tomorrow over remuneration issues. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Carlotta. Now, the president of the World Bank, David Malpass, is to step down a year early. Mr Malpass was the choice of the former US president, Donald Trump. He was criticised as a climate change denier, but no reason has been given his for his departure. Let's get the latest from Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak. A very good morning to you, Chris. Good morning, Emma. So what's happened? Well, it, as you suggest there, it was actually a surprise resignation from David Malpass last night or yesterday evening. Um, he didn't give a specific reason for his departure early. His term ends in April 2024. He said he would stay on until the end of this fiscal year of the World Bank, which is June. Um, and on the one hand, yes, this was a surprise yesterday, but for insiders at the very least, um, this does appear to be somewhat coordinated. Joe Biden, uh, the U.S. president, did want to appoint a World Bank president already when he came into office. But of course, you know, the, the World Bank president typically sits a, a five-year term, and that was not something that he could demand. Um, but at the same time, it seems like over the past few weeks, this is something that has been coordinated somewhat with the U.S. administration. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently, just last week, kind of urged the World Bank to do more, particularly on climate financing and, and sort of making climate integral to, to what it does uh, as an institution, as well as other reforms. And that's really been the key in terms of some of the criticisms that you've had of David Malpass over the last few years. As you mentioned there, he was an appointee of Donald Trump. Um, and that, you know, it, it seems like something something at least came to a head, whether it was a personal decision of David Malpass to kind of force this or the fact that the White House wants to move specifically on climate, climate financing for developing countries. 
you know, we don't we don't know the exact details from from the inside of that, but it does seem like this was something coordinated. Indeed, I mean, one wonders how much of a hangover of the Trump era, Mister Malpass, is or rather was uh, you mentioned we've both mentioned the issue of his climate change denial uh, comments how much did that push him out well you know it's a good question I, I think climate was a key element of this you know back in September uh, there was this very sort of comment that went around the world that really highlighted uh, his his potential climate denial we don't know exactly where he stands on this, it should be said. But there was this moment where he was asked by a reporter whether fossil fuels uh, contributed to climate change or not. And he's just responded, well, I'm not a scientist. And that was the comment that sort of started much of this. Uh, But at the same time, I have to say, you know, as we've both mentioned, he was a Trump appointee. And so Beyond that, really, you know, even though this September comments from him were the ones that raised questions, the White House at that point did not call for his resignation. He clarified his remarks and said, of course, climate change is man-made. And he sort of did a little turnabout on that. But, you know, I spoke with Nadia Dar. She is the head of the Washington office of Oxfam International, an organization charity that has worked hard on World Bank reform. And she talked about the fact that, you know, climate change, this question of climate change has really hung over David Malpass since the beginning of his term. Let's have a little listen. There were questions as soon as his name was announced as to what credibility he was bringing into this job and especially his position on climate change. It took a long time for him to even start using terminology like climate change. And really that kind of lack of leadership on climate change was just so highly, highly evident. So that was one thing that was difficult for an institution that should be playing a leadership role. And that is doing a lot of work, but where the leadership was just not magnifying that and and not demonstrating the kind of leadership that we would need and expect from such a large development institution. Now, one thing that Nadia Dar did say and others say as well is that, you know, David Malpass did well on other things, like particularly the pandemic, helping with crisis financing, also on Ukraine and Russia, helping developing countries manage their debts. So that was something that was key in terms of a positive uh, of his tenure. But as as she suggests there, and as we've seen, also partly because of the climate summit in Egypt, Uh, as well, where there was a push for more additional climate financing. That really seems to be what did him in in the end. So the question is, uh, has to be asked, who replaces him? So this is the key, always interesting question, Emma. Uh, There is a essentially gentleman's agreement, if you will, between the World Bank and the IMF that the United States picks the president of the World Bank and Europe picks the president or the managing director, I should say, of the International Monetary Fund. This is something that has happened for a long time. Therefore, in theory, at least, this does fall to Joe Biden. And the U.S. Treasury Department is involved. Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said there would be an appointment, a nomination of a new leader. This is something that Joe Biden is quite eager to do. Uh, that said, there is always this push for that gentleman's agreement to be lifted. Uh, I asked Nadia Dar uh, of Oxfam International about this as well. Let's have a little listen to what she said. The World Bank is almost 80 years old. We're talking about setting it up for the future. You know, all these discussions about this evolution roadmap 
and how can the bank be fit for purpose? But we're stuck in this archaic colonial relic of a gentleman's agreement where the U.S. still determines who the leader of this multilateral development institution is and where Europeans get to decide who the leader of the International Monetary Fund is. You know, if we're talking about fairness, if we're talking about good governance, if we're talking about making sure that the institution is working for people in the global south and then not to even have the possibility for the leadership of that institution to come from the global south is absolutely mad. That was Chris Chermak there uh, talking to us a little bit earlier on from Washington. Let's stay in the world of business and check what other stories are making the headlines. To help us do that, I'm joined by Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Hello, Ewan. Hi, Emma. Good to speak to you. Tell us about corporate profits. They have passed their peak. Yeah, U.S. corporate profits have been, U.S. companies have been seeing their fattest profits in 70 years over the last couple of years. That's really helped to sustain a uh, pandemic hiring spree by U.S. business. Now it looks like margins are starting to shrink and that could signal harder times ahead for the jobs market. Now, I have to stress this is forward looking stuff because at the moment the U.S. job market is very healthy. The latest monthly job figures we had from the U.S. were really knockout economists were expecting the u.s economy to have created something in the region of 180 190,000 jobs it's actually created half a million jobs uh, over the course of the month so the job market is very rosy at the moment although certain sectors particularly tech are seeing a lot of layoffs uh, but looking at uh, earnings reports over the 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 recent period we've just finished earnings season in the u.s getting towards the end of it uh, and the bulk of reports uh, are showing uh, per uh, per share earnings uh, down 2% on average. And that is the first decline in those since the first quarter of 2020. So we're starting to see the shine coming off on the corporate profit front a little bit. An interesting illustration of that over here in Europe, the world's biggest food company, uh, Nestle, uh, looks like it's reaching the limits of its pricing power. Now, we've discussed this before about how consumer goods companies can pass on uh, higher inflation, those higher costs into higher prices. And at the beginning of the inflationary spiral, it looked like they were getting away with it. Now it seems they are not. Volumes at Nestle dropped by 2.5%. It was the second consecutive quarter where the amount of products Nestle sold dropped. Total sales, of course, have gone up because prices are going up, but the volume has decreased. At the last time that Nestle's volume was negative before that was right back in 1999. Mm, Okay, we'll move on to international trade relations. Uh, Politically, China and Australia, well, their their trade relations are improving, even if politically it's not getting better. Yeah, the freeze is over. That was uh, what apparently was said by the uh, Chinese to the Australian Trade Minister. We spoke to Trade Minister Don Farrell on Bloomberg uh, a little bit earlier today, uh, and uh, they're going to be having uh, a meeting uh, to discuss the further thawing of relations uh, they, uh, the tensions didn't occur overnight he told us and they're not going to be resolved overnight but it does seem like we're seeing uh, quite a warming apparently the uh, Chinese trade minister said to him that the freeze is over and we're now mo- moving to a warm spring 
Uh, now, you'll remember that back in 2020, uh, China placed an immediate uh, uh, moratorium on the import of Australian coal, uh, a very big uh, a very large amount of trade between the two countries in, in that uh, sector. That was after Prime Minister Scott Morrison called for an international investigation into the origins of COVID in Wuhan. The Chinese were not happy with that. The uh, embargo then extended to other uh, areas, including uh, wine, barley and lobsters. Of course, China is Australia's most important uh, trade partner, and this has been pretty bad for the Australian economy. It does seem like that whole relationship is starting to warm up. Ewan Potts from Bloomberg, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Briefing. back with the briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The time here in London is 12.20. Let's have a look at the papers. I am delighted to say that Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, has come into the studio brandishing a copy of the New York Times. I've just come running in. I'm out of breath and it's the biggest paper in the world to sort of hold on to. Well, it's it, fine. It's a, it's a healthy size. It's perfect. No smaller, no bigger. Before we, we go into the New York Times, I wanted to mm. start with the Japan Times and a story about vending machines. Go What's, on. It's the strangest item you've ever purchased from it's, a vending machine. I have a, a comfortably pedestrian existence, which means that the most exciting thing that I've ever managed to get out of a, a vending machine... Well, it, was, it wasn't quality but quantity. There was a vending machine in a place I used to work which couldn't work out that if you put in let's say 50p for a chocolate bar it had been badly programmed or just broken so that the entire contents of that row would dispense themselves to you so you just got an overload of caramels or an overload of chocolates and it took a good full six months for the people who operated this thing to work out that you'd that everybody cleared everything out by 10 o'clock in the morning and then we're all wildly ill by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> That's my idea of a great vending machine. It's a, it was a wonderful vending machine. And those funny things that you used to clean your teeth that looked like um, bottle brushes. <laughs> in, that you only seem to get in, in, in motorway service stations. Well, unrelated to this story, there mm. is a mashed potato vending machine in Singapore. Is and it a, any good? Uh, yeah, for a dollar, you can have gravy with it as wow. well. Warm or cold? Warm. Good. Have uh, you had it? No, I haven't. Oh, that's a shame. I was hoping. With or without gravy. But uh, totally distracting from the story <laughs> yes. here. Uh, in Japan, vending machines have tumbled by 30% since 2000, and that's due to a population decline and intensifying competition with convenience stores. But the pandemic has triggered a huge change in behaviour. A lot of people want high-end cuisine, but they don't want to go out. They still want to stay in. And we've seen that in-person eating and drinking still hasn't recovered. It's still 60% of pre-pandemic levels. So food dispensing machines have become a rare spark of growth in the sector. Brand new high-tech machines, they are six foot tall, and they allow... Well, that rules me out, because I'm five foot three. Oh, no, you, the buttons are nice and low. OK, that's fine. We are in Japan, remember. <laughs> uh, you can buy frozen and chilled versions of your favourite dishes from Michelin Guide-listed soup noodles, sashimi, wagyu steak, and even caviar. Do you like wagyu steak? I love wagyu steak, and I'm learning to cook it, actually, at the moment. Now, which makes me think, because when you go and choose your piece of wagyu, obviously... The, the the cattle themselves have been on a very gentle, delicate, wonderful journey involving massages and beer and what have you. You know, as they go to meet their maker, they go with a smile on their lovely faces. 
To end up in a vending machine is surely one of the most humiliating things that could happen to a cow, one would argue. Arguably, yes, but the providers are very, very upmarket. Right, okay. A and posh vending machine. A posh vending machine. And this particular owner says that they're interested in evolving, evolving the machine to fit even bigger items, such as bento boxes and even large pizzas. Okay, I, that just, just doesn't... That's not working for me, for starters. I mean, one wonders, where are these where are these vending machines going to be? Do we know? Train stations. Train stations, okay. So pick, some, pick me some Wagyu up on the way home, please, honey. Uh, oh. um, <laughs> Away from the Japan Times, let's go to the Taipei Times. Now, this is largely focused on the Chinese animal. Uh, what is your Chinese animal? Uh, I'm a tiger. So I, a tiger. I'm a wood tiger. What are you? That means I'm a pig, which means I Excellent. do. I do whatever I want with strength. Uh, Feet in the trough at all times. A tiger is resilience and strength, even in times of struggle. Does that sound familiar? Not at all. I'm an absolute pussycat. So this year (laughs) is the year of the rabbit. Yes, hopeless for you and me. Hopeless. Dreadful. Not not a good partnership. No, no, Uh, no. They are gentle, You can imagine a tiger and a rabbit. That's just not going to happen. It is. It's going to be quite fluffy <laughs> well speaking of fluffy these rabbits these people who associate with the year of the rabbit mm. they are going to the wyming temple it's seen an explosion of visitors because it has a rabbit deity however the wyming temple in new taipei city is also the only temple in the world to provide good luck and love uh, and marriage to taiwan's gay community lovely uh, the rabbit god whom worshippers call taiye is the gay counterpart to Yu Lao, who is the old man under the moon. Who, I'm, I'm struggling to keep up here, Tom. The old man under the moon. Right. Uh, is... I, I was about to make a joke about he's, he's oddly enough, a, a gay deity on Hampstead Heath in London. <laughs> However, the old man under the moon is, is the deity responsible for love and marriage. Okay. Um, but his gay rabbit counterpart has come from the, the, the fact that rabbit is an, a slur for homosexuals in China, but also a 18th century Chinese official who was beaten to death after peeping on a local inspector who he had feelings for. This is so complicated. I, I know, I'm really sorry. But, but <laughs> soon after his death, he appeared as this... This is the man who was beaten to death? Yes. For peep- being a peeping Tom? Yes, he, right. he appeared from the underworld as the rabbit god. And oh. this is the shrine. So... This, and this is a good thing. This is a good thing because... You have a peeping Tom reincarnated as a rabbit god. Yes. And that's a good thing. Yes, because now the gay crowd looking for guidance can go there to improve their marriage. And this really, really lovely quote from the very naive journalist who wrote this piece says that Yu Lao traditionally serves heterosexual people, but some gay men who pray here may end up meeting a lot of new friends. So this temple, a religious institution, has now become a very popular gay haunt. That's the that's the conclusion. Thank you. We got there. We did. Was it worth it? Yes, obviously. So worth it. So, so worth it. So worth it. I'm going to ask you for our next story. I, well, I'm going to have to do it so quickly because I've already overrun explaining that's why fine. the gay deity is a rabbit. In the <laughs> New York Times, have you come across assortative mm. mating as a term? Not recently. It doesn't cro- crop up massively over the Nelson dining table. Well... All animals do it. Or anywhere else in the Nelson household, for that matter. (laughs) All animals do it. All humans do it. It's about mating with people who are similar to ourselves. Okay. And historically, this has been linked to widening inequality because the rich get richer when a doctor marries a doctor. But when a doctor marries a nurse, scandal, the gap narrows. 
We've, um, is this another overcomplicated story? No, this is fine. Okay, great. But we're still with, we're holding on tight, Tom. Over the last 30 years, a new report has found that this type of mating and dating is on the decline, which could narrow inequalities so in society. So everyone can play doctors and nurses. Exactly. Now, there are two things that has caused this trend. Firstly, millennials, God love them, their dating apps are all based on looks. They pick their lover based on how they look on their phones. Um, and also, this is an interesting one, because women have now had greater educational opportunities over the past 30 years, like men, now they want their slice of cake and marry someone who is of their equal. But there is a shortage of unmarried men in high socioeconomic statuses. So women are either remaining single mm. or marrying useless men, which is narrowing inequality. Thank you, Tom Webb. <laughs> You're listening to Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations, new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. And if you've just joined us, welcome. This is The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson, and a special edition of a Thursday regular now. Monocle 24 senior correspondent, Fernanda Augusta Pacheco, joins me for the weekly global countdown. But this week, Faye, we're not going to a country. Well, we are, but there's a glittery headdress special. It's, I... car- it's Carnival Week. It's Carnival Week, and that's the most important uh, moment for the Brazilian music world. I mean, because that's when artists release the tracks that might do well. And remember, we celebrate Carnival the whole week. I mean, there's a lot of pre-Carnival parties as well. It's a never-ending thing there in Brazil. So, I mean, go... Looking into the dim and distant past of, let's say, the United Kingdom, everyone who went bananas for the Christmas number one, do you have the equivalent of a carnival number one in Brazil? We do have an equivalent, and I will be talking about this throughout this five songs that I chose. Five songs. In fact, six, because I am a little bit naughty here. Uh, And sometimes it's quite organic, sometimes very hard to predict which song actually might do well. Sometimes a top artist releases a hit that doesn't really connect with people. But, you know, we'll look into those examples that I'll give to you. So are we looking at this year's contenders for 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 carnival number one absolutely Excellent. so this is this a sort of like five four three two one position or is this just what phase head has offered us today what phase heading is like my predictions oh, I I, I, i'm playing a little bit of a, a magic game here it's some <laughs> it, it's my predictions <laughs> good good right okay so who are we starting or who or what are we starting with? well i'm starting in a very safe way because she is the queen of carnival she is celebrating 30 years of her career uh, this year it's the wonderful Ivete sangalo i mean she is a blockbuster name in brazil i mean if she's going to perform you can be sure that it will be sold out uh, and you know she's still releasing great singles as well and this is one of them could do very well this year's carnival it's called cria da Ivete, which is something like Ivete's babies 
okay, well, we start off with a bit of a punch. That's the Queen of Carnival, and you can tell. So tell us a little bit more, more about this lady, Ivete Sangala. She's energetic. She's from Bahia, of course, and that's what, you know, the majority of Brazilian artists, they come from Bahia. It's such a music, musical state. And the genre she became known as is Axé, which, again, was created in Bahia and is a mixture of uh, several genres. There's a little bit of Afro-Caribbean touch, reggae, calypso, uh, frevo as well from Brazil. It's a very, you have to dance uh, when you listen to it. And she's fun. She doesn't take herself too seriously. She says in the lyrics, single? No. Happy. You know, if there are drinks, I'll be drinking <laughs> with my experienced friends. Your experienced friends. Whatever that means. I think we heard about some of them from Tom Webb a little exactly, bit earlier on. Exactly. Um, let's move on to, uh, well, frankly, you, I'm going to get you to spell the name of the next artist because the video requires googling simply for absolutely all the wrong reasons unless you are a manufacturer of incredibly adhesive underwear because my goodness do the dancers in this video need need it I mean it's incredible the it way is they incredible, dance it is it, it's basically uh, Thaisa Maravilha uh, she's part of the Bonde das Maravilhas which is a group of full of uh, kind of female MCs uh, but they also are dancers as well mm. and this new track called Saio das Maravilhas I agree with you Emma you do have to google because there's very complex choreography involved is that what you call it? it's that's exactly for Excellent. example <laughs> one of them you have to touch your ankle on your butt but you know when you look at the video I mean it's frank that's impossible. the least of our worries, I think, given what's I mean, when, when you're sort of like talking to dance to, it is in inverted commas. Uh, I think it's something like twerking, but with about 300 volts being fed through yeah, your body at the but, same time. But one thing I, I, I might agree with you, everybody's talking about twerking. Mm. In Brazil, we've been twerking for decades, Don't you know. know. You know, it's not a new thing for us, no. you know. It, 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 it comes very natural. The master twerker. Yes, shall okay. we have a listen to this Please, song? and let's limber our hem- hips up for it. Ensayo de Maravillas, is that how you said? Excellent. Look it up. Um, next one, um, we're going to somewhere called uh, someone called Tubarão. Who are they? Yeah, it's it's a song. Tubarão te amo, shark, I love you. Nice. It's a track full of uh, MCs. I mean, there's the, a long list of of the artists here, and they actually sampled an Axé song, the rhythm I was talking to you about Yvette Sangalo. So it, this song is a lot of samples in there. It can be a little bit harsh, but young people are loving it. it became viral on TikTok. It's been number one for quite a few months or so, and I think. It might continue during carnival. It's not for everyone, Emma, but let's have a listen. We have a clip of it. I'm not going to lie. There's something quite raw about it that I like it, you know. Oh, it's I, fine. I shouldn't like it, but I do. You know, there's it's, something that attracts me to the song. It's excellent to be played out of a car at two o'clock in the morning by badly behaved young people. Exactly. It's perfect. Uh, let's move to something a little bit cooler from a from a group who we have on the playlist but have a really lovely smooth retro style to them absolutely i think you will love this uh, bala desejo one of my favorite brazilian bands of the moment they released one of my favorite albums again called sing 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 and this song is actually about carnival it's called baile de mascaras the masked ball uh, and again when you listen to that you remind me of the, the golden age of brazilian music in the 70s in the 80s as well it's beautiful it's suave and i'm sure we do very well in the carnival blocks as well Let's have a swish along to it. 
have glossier hair when you listen to yes, that. Yes, it's dreamy. It's I, very dreamy. I love it. Mm. I, and and again, you know, there's space for everyone in Carnival. It used to be just samba, but look at the the variety of genres we're doing here. There's kick flares and a waistline to that. That's exactly. wonderful. Okay, let's move on. Uh, finally, I think we're going to have something from well, the culture minister of Brazil. Frankly, has walked to the walk, hasn't she? Yes, but we have actually two more tracks. Ah, and the first sorry. one, we're going to play a very quick uh, clip of this. I think this is actually going to be the number one song uh, of this year's Carnival. His name is Leo Santana. A very handsome, a six foot six man, uh, and, and again, there's apparently a petition of straight men in Brazil saying, "Please don't do your dance videos, otherwise our wives would be crazy about it." I mean, of course, this is a joke, uh, but yes, he's handsome. You never know in Brazil. You never know, right? No. You never know. Let's have a quick listen to Léo Santana, Zona de Perigo, Danger Zone. <laughs> with all the others sounds Derek gosh goodness no no disrespect to Leo Santana but it sounds a bit low rent it, it is a bit low rent but I don't know what actually managed to connect I think it's the sexy lyrics she was kissing my mouth touching the back of my head I am enjoying it's very descriptive song uh, and perhaps a little bit romantic but I do agree with you Emma the, the beat is not there energetic but Brazilians Neither are loving it the lyrics it. sound it frankly I mean, it doesn't sound like an exact charmer I can't imagine <laughs> sitting here next to him for the evening going gosh wow are we with those lyrics? All right, but obviously he hits a spot somewhere. So finally, I do want to hear about Margaret Menezes. I mean, Margaret Menezes, she's our culture minister and she's another carnival queen. She's 60 years old now. But in fact, besides her jobs as culture minister, she will be performing this year's carnival in João Pessoa. She's going to Bahia. There's a lot of tributes to her. She had an amazing uh, music career. Uh, she's very much rela- uh, you know, associated with carnival. I chose uh, to end uh, the show a lovely track by her it's called Faraó by Margaret Menezes let's have a listen it's a very enjoyable track sort of delivered her political speeches in that style. I think, well, actually, frankly, any politician would be quite useful, right? Well, it would get the message home. Fernanda Agosta Pacheco, thank you so much for our Carnival special. And that's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Carlotta Rubello. Our researchers were Andre Nicolai Parmentian and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back at the same time tomorrow, but for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.